Let's read together Romans chapter 9. Just remember that we're reading the Word of God. We're not reading an opinion or something that we especially like, but we're reading the Word of God. So Romans nine fourteen through 18 says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. I think when we're considering this passage, it's too loud. When we consider this passage, oftentimes we're upset when we read this. We we read... Romans 9.13, and we automatically want to reject what Paul says. Because our culture around us tells us there's no way that God actually hated Esau. How's that possible? And that's where Paul, Paul is getting this question. Is there injustice or unrighteousness with God? That's what Paul is getting at. When he gets to verse 14, he's just made a case for the fact that God chooses whom he chooses. It's his will that's done, not man's. And that is not popular. I mean, many of us have had conversations with others who we love, and they reject this completely. They reject the idea that God chooses his elect. God predestines some to be his children. This isn't popular. Many want to say, well, Paul here, he's talking about elect, but when he says elect, he's not talking about elect to eternal salvation. He's talking about elect to receive specific blessings from God. Well, I don't think That's a good understanding of this passage, and I'll tell you why. If you look back at the first half of Romans chapter 9, we talked about last week, why in the world would Paul have unceasing sorrow? We see that there. Why would Paul have unceasing sorrow, unceasing grief, and say, I wish myself were accursed, cut off from God? Why would he say that about his brothers whom he loves so dearly if it didn't have eternal consequences? And so I reject the idea that, that Paul here is talking about something other than eternal salvation. Because that is what many people want to believe. Maybe they grew up in a, a church that taught predestination in such a way that you could live however you wanted. Maybe that's how it was. 
Or maybe they taught in such a way that, oh, you, you have the will to choose God. You, you choose God. That's another way that people teach. But that's not what Paul is saying here. It's absolutely clear this passage must shape us, not the other way around. Oftentimes we come to difficult passages like this, the doctrine that is taught here, and we balk at it because as human beings we want to be the center of attention. But here God gets all the glory. And we can see that. Is there no injustice with God because he loved Jacob and he hated Esau? Is there no injustice with God because... He chose one before they were ever born? This is, again, we have to understand last week's message to truly grasp this. So if you haven't seen that, please look at it. But if God chose one before they could do good or bad, and opposite of what most people in that time would have done, then Surely there's injustice with God. That's, that's the obvious question that Paul is getting at. So, is there? And today's message is the justification of God. Unconditional election. The justification of God. And that title, the first half, The Justification of God, is actually a book that John Piper wrote on verse 15 a book on one verse, <laughs> because he saw how important this doctrine is to the church, how important it is to understanding this uh, chapter and understanding what Paul is saying. And so a lot of my ideas for this message came from John Piper, and I, I really, really appreciate his faithfulness to what the Bible says in this section. He realizes it's not a... Con- not comfortable, not popular, and I I agree it's not popular, but it's the Word of God. And so, when we get to verse 15, we see how Paul argues for it. What does he say? He says, For he says to Moses, who? God. God says to Moses. God, in his own defense, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Does that answer your question? Is, does it seem like Paul has made a good basis for God choosing whom he will? No, he's just restated the same thing. Paul hasn't given a reason. He just says, <laughs> he essentially is saying what he's already said. God will choose who he will choose. So how is that a ground or a basis for our argument? And I think... Uh, Piper has a great idea, and I, I think I would like to show how he gets there. And so if you look with me at Exodus chapter 33, this is the quote where Paul draws this from. And I think it's important for us as believers to see the context of this passage because if we don't understand the context, we won't understand why Paul is using it. So this is a moment in, in Israel, Israel's history 
God has come to them and said, I will not go with you. I'll send my angel, but I'm not going with you. And I think it's important for us as believers to see what, Paul, what Moses says. And, and Moses says, Essentially, Moses says, and I, I, I lost the verse, but Moses says, if you don't go, we're not going anywhere. It, the difference between us and every nation around us is your presence with us. And then uh, Moses says this in response. Well, I'll read verse 14, 33, 14. He said, my presence will, shall go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses, of course, said, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing for which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And then Moses says, in verse 18, he says, I pray you, show me your glory. Show me your glory. How many of us have asked that question? We want to see God for who he is. This is how God replies. And this is the reply that Paul is referencing in Romans chapter 8. Nine, And he said, I myself will make my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim my name. That's really important. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So first he says, I will cause my goodness. What is good about me? Everything is good. Myself will pass before you, and I will proclaim my name. Why? Because his name is the most marvelous of names. And then he says, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Why is this in here? The essence, the essential nature of who God is requires that he is free to choose whom he will have mercy on, and whom he will have compassion on. God is not sovereign if he cannot choose whom he will choose. This is why the fall happened, I believe, part of it. We would never understand the mercy and the grace of God without the fall. God would not need to be merciful. He would not need to choose people who did not deserve it. He would not need to save people by His own power and show grace without it. That's why I believe it's in God's plan to demonstrate the full glory of God in creation. And so, what Paul is saying is not necessarily a rational argument. It's not a logical argument if you turn back to Romans chapter 9. 
He's not arguing. He's not saying, I understand this. He's saying, this is what God said. I, I don't get to decide who God shows mercy to because God has already said he will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. Because God's will, God's ability to choose whom he will is his prerogative. John Piper said this. He says, I think God is saying to Moses and to us, my glory is expressed in my name, Yahweh or Lord. And my name is expressed in my freedom to have mercy on whom I have mercy. This is who I am. This is my name. This is my glory. My essence as God consists essentially in being free from any constraint originating outside my own will. This is the essence of what it means to be God. This is His name, His glory. I hope we see that, that His mercy is essential to who He is. Again, I've been reading this book by Tozer on the attributes of God. I highly recommend it. I know some of you have more time than you had in the past, and I would recommend, if you don't have knowledge of the holy, to get it and read through it, because it will... Open your eyes to the glory of God in a way that it's easy to forget. It's easy read, I I think. But another key to this passage, to understanding what Paul is saying, we have to understand what righteousness is when Paul uses it. Because that's the word that's translated here, injustice. It's the negative, when we put an A in front of a word, it's the negative of righteous. So is, is there unrighteousness with God? So what is righteousness? Piper defines righteousness as this, and I think this is so helpful for understanding this passage. He says, God's righteousness is essential, essentially his unswerving allegiance to his own name and his own glory. God is righteous to the degree that he upholds and displays the honor of his name. He is righteous when he values most what is most valuable, and what is most valuable is his own glory. There is nothing above the glory of God that is more valuable than God. So God is most righteous when he brings the most glory to his name. That's what Piper is getting at, that when, Paul, when God is fully in control, He gets the glory. This isn't good news to many. Because we, we read in verse 16, it says, So then it does not depend on the man. Who wills? Well, I, I have strong willpower. I can get it. I can do it. How many people have you met who said, Well, I've tried to trust God, but I just can't. Work up any faith. I've had that conversation. Or, I want to follow God, but it doesn't seem to work. Or the man who runs. And, and this word run can be ex- changed or, or understood as to exert himself. The action we take. So it's not in what we want to do, nor in what we do. 
This is absolutely essential to the gospel. It is not what we want to do or who what we do, but it is God who has mercy. It is not our choice. When we deny this, when we deny this, we are denying the character of God. And that's why this message is so important for us today. Because the world around us says, well, I choose God. You know, when I get old, I'll follow God. When I've sowed my oats, when I get a family. Why? Because we, we think we're in control. We believe that we're in control, but God is in control. He is the one who chooses to have mercy when He wills. It's not our will, nor our exertion that brings it to pass. It is God alone. And you're thinking, man, how can this be positive? (laughs) This is just the first half. How can this be positive? Well, I have three things, I think, that are positive when we think about unconditional election. One. No sin is too great to override the election of God. The most wicked person that you find who says, God cannot save me, is a liar. Because that's arrogance. That's saying, I and my sin is more powerful than the power of God to transform me. No sin is too great. That doesn't mean that God doesn't call us to repentance, and I hope I will make that clear. But when God calls us and elects us to be His children, He is calling us out of darkness. Not because we did something good. Like I said last week, If you were to choose Jacob or Esau, naturally speaking, who would you choose? The homebody or the the hunter and the stew maker and the, the diligent hard worker that Esau was? Jacob got almost everything he did by conniving, if you think about it. But God had called Jacob... Things change with Jacob in time. God had a a work to do in him. And that's the same with us. God does not start and say, you know what? You need to be exactly the way I want you in the end to become a Christian. No. God starts with us where we are. And when He has elected us to salvation, He preserves us. So we cannot in any way override God's election in this sense of saying, well, God can't save me because I'm too wicked. The man on the street who murdered his family, who says, I'm just going to drink my life away. The man in prison on death row, for whatever it may be. There's hope for them because... God elects, and if they repent 
of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they can be saved. I pray that we understand the importance of this. That's, that's positive number one. Number two, none of us can boast. I know that sounds like a negative, but it's a positive. No one can boast because we didn't do anything. Not a single person here today did anything to earn God's election. Nothing in us said, oh, God wants to choose you. I'm fairly certain that there are many, many more people that God could have chosen if he was going to pick people based on how good they were or how great they were. I can think of far many people that I know who are much better speakers than I who could be standing here today. And when we cannot boast, the positive is God's grace and God gets all the glory. So when we believe this doctrine, when we see this for what it is, we give God the most glory possible because we cannot take any credit. And thirdly, we cannot undo what God has done. Because if, if God chooses us without condition, He elects us, He's going to make sure that we make it. There may be some roller coasters in your life. I've heard of many who have walked away and God has drawn them back to Himself. Some may just be on a, 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 a course forward and we have roller coasters and times where we're, we wonder where God is, but He's continually working in us. But God does not leave us alone because he loves us. And that's the thing. Many people say, well, if, if I can't lose my salvation, if I am elect, then I, won't, then I don't have to do anything. No, that proves you're not. <laughs> if, if you're looking for excuses to sin, there's a problem. We need to go back and read what Paul said in Romans 5, 6, and 7. Because if you want an excuse to sin... You're not desiring to follow God. You're just using God as an excuse to feel good about yourself while you sin. We cannot lose our election because we're so sinful. Even when we fall, God can bring us back. So I hope this would encourage you not to sin, but to realize that no matter what sin you have committed... Since you've become a believer, God can bring you back to Himself. It may require great sacrifice. You have to give up some things that you have put in, allowed in your life. But God is more powerful. He is in control. His love does not fail. And I think this point really points back to the end of chapter 8 of Romans. His love does not fail. He is always faithful to bring His elect to the finish line. That's why we have hope today in the midst of the crisis that people are panicking over. 
If we lose our life, guess what? We have hope on the other side. It is not over. Because God has called us and elected us to be His children. So, God is on trial, right? That's what the question, is there injustice in God? Is It's, it's almost like you've gone into a courtroom and a judge is standing there and the defendant is God and we're His opposition. We want to accuse God of being unrighteous. Exhibit one was Moses and what God said. Exhibit two is a negative exhibit, and it's the next two verses, verse 16, or verse 17 and 18. It says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up. So, when he says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, what is he actually saying? He is saying, God says to Pharaoh. Right? Because he says, I raised you up. The scripture is recording God's word to Pharaoh. So God has spoken to Moses. Now he's speaking to Pharaoh. Of the two, who do you think is the elect? Moses. Who would the world choose to elect? Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth. But do you see the difference here? Do you see the difference that God is faithful and He's choosing Moses and He didn't choose Pharaoh? And what does He say here? He says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, this for this very purpose, or for this, I raised you up. What? For what purpose? Well, He, just, he says, To demonstrate My power in you. God brought Pharaoh to power for only one purpose. To demonstrate His own power. This is right after Moses... Well, let's turn there. Exodus chapter 9. I think it's important that we understand context when... We're doing this. And so, God has turned... It is in the midst of the plagues. The frogs, the flies, the cattle, the boils... And it just constantly says, like, read verse 9, 12. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And we just see this whole time, God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Multiple times throughout this time, the magicians were actually being softened. The magicians were like, Pharaoh, we need to stop this because this man is God's servant. 
This man has power that we have never seen and have no power to deal with. And yet, we see here in Exodus 9, verse 16, so it's the plague of hail, and he says, But indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain. Paul uses the word to raise you up in order to show you my power and and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. You see, the arrogance of Pharaoh, I am in power. No one's going to tell me what to do. Now that is popular today, right? In the world that we live in. The popular, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'll do what I want. I tease my wife sometimes like, I do what I want, I'm a grown man. To which she replies, hmm. <laughs> but, you know what I'm saying, we, we tease like that as Christians, but in the world that's actually the mentality. I'll do what I want, I, I don't need to answer to anyone. Which interestingly in this crisis, now everyone wants you to answer to the government. Isn't that a contrast? It goes completely against the American mindset of independence and no need for anyone. Now everyone has become legalistic and calling because their neighbors are having a party. Or It's amazing. Just go on the fa- your local Facebook page and see how many people are posting about people standing six feet apart from each other at their home or at at Kroger or wherever. It's actually kind of humorous to me, but um, but then we're legalistic for saying that Jesus is the only way. Apparently social distancing is the only way. Today, that's the new gospel. Anyways, side note, back to the message. Anyways, so Paul... Paul says here, he says, For this purpose I raise you up to demonstrate my power. This is all about God. This is not about Pharaoh and his power. And that my name, see this again, God is talking about his name, just as he did in the quote that Paul pulled from the glory of God that was going to be revealed to Moses. My name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. You don't think in that time the destruction of Egypt, principally speaking, by the plagues wasn't known throughout the world? I believe it was. And if that wasn't enough, the destruction of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea? Who got the glory? This tribe of unkempt, unfit slaves? Or their God. That's why Moses didn't want God to send his angel with him because he needed God with him. Because they were nothing. They had not trained to be soldiers. They had not trained to defeat the enemy. They needed God and his power in their life. 
So the negative is God hardens Pharaoh. Many people want to say, well, you know, Pharaoh made his own choice. God didn't just didn't soften his heart. I don't believe that's true. Because the only time you see the Greek word for harden here in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, the only time you see it is when God is causing someone to be hardened. I'm not saying that Pharaoh didn't do what he wanted to do. He did. Absolutely did. But God gave him a special hardening. And this is a a topic that most people don't like. And it's what most people would call double predestination. God predestines those to heaven and those to hell. I know that it's not popular, but I believe that this is what this passage is saying. And that is why, brothers and sisters, we are the, 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 the honor that we have is that God chooses whom He wills and He chooses whom He won't. And we see that in verse 18. So then, in light of all of this, He, who's He? God. God has mercy on whom He desires. And He hardens whom He desires. Do we see that? The hardening is the exact opposite of mercy this is a word play this is mercy and hardening we all know people who are hard to the gospel now whether that hardening is for good we don't know till the end comes till their life ends god knows But we do know that God is in control. And while this doctrine is extremely difficult to understand as believers, Paul is not arguing from, well, the da da da. He's just quoting Scripture. He's just saying, look, it is God. If He is sovereign, He must be able to show mercy to whom He wills and to harden whom He wills. And Paul is going to. Hit us between the eyes next time I preach. Not next week. Joel's got that privilege. But the following week, we're going to see why God can do what He will. And why we cannot find fault with God. But we have to look at God's Word and be honest with ourselves. When Paul says... He has mercy on whom He desires and He hardens whom He desires. We can't twist that. We we can't say, well, you know what? God just lets the people alone. He does in a way. We know that in, in Romans. We desire to sin. But there is a clear evidence here that Paul is saying He will have mercy i.e. soften, bring grace, His Holy Spirit to transform life and bring salvation, and He will also have hardening. God will choose what He wants to do. So how do we apply this? One thing, God has chosen His people as vessels 
of honor. And one part of that honor is the honor to share the gospel. There are people in the world today dying, not just from corona, not just from the flu, colds, pneumonia. There are people dying of starvation and hunger, lack of water. There are people dying all over the world today from so many different reasons. Car accidents, plane accidents, war. But guess what? God has sent us out as His commissioned ambassadors to preach the gospel so that His elect will be reached. What an honor! He not only elected us to be His children, but He's elected us to be ambassadors to bring other children to Him. So I encourage you, don't be discouraged by this doctrine to say, you know what, I don't need to preach the gospel because God will just get the ones He wants. Yeah, He's going to use somebody else other than you if you have that mentality. But what an honor to be used by God to bring the gospel to the lost and to see salvation. I, I can only... I've seen this happen. I've seen God in His grace transform a life through the gospel. Not only in my life, but lives that I've had the opportunity to share with. And I can't think of a greater joy. Not even the birth of my children is greater than to see the new birth of a child of God. And I can't imagine what great joy it will be to Megan and I when God transforms the hearts of our children. Because that is greater than physical heritage. To see our children and the lost come to Christ because we see God's hope and love in the world we live in. God is in control. This doctrine should drive us to share the gospel because we know that no one is too wicked for God to transform. And it kind of goes back to my positive points, but this doctrine also gives us peace when the devil is trying to condemn us and say, you can't be forgiven of that. That's too, you're too wicked. That should be our call. Run to Jesus. Run to the cross. Surrender. Repent and be forgiven. Don't give up. Don't quit because it's been hard. And lastly, we should be seeking all that we do to give glory to God. Whether that's preaching, the work that we do, the schoolwork that we do, the achievements that we achieve, if God did not give us life and hope and peace, will we be doing those things? No. They are the impetus for what we do. We live holy lives because we know that we're His children.
Not because we're trying to become His children, but because we are His children. Are we consumed with the glory of God? I hope so. If we are consumed with giving Him glory, then our actions will translate to that. But if if we forget that we're supposed to be giving glory to God, if we're consumed with the applause of men, accolades, then we'll lose sight of the glory of God. We'll make decisions the way we discipline our kids, the way we take care of issues at work, school. Be all selfish, self-centered. So I encourage you today, when you're making decisions, big and small, will this glorify God? Or will this dishonor God? Don't forget, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. That is a privilege that all of us who are believers cannot forget. When you remember that, your life is different. You are transformed. I think it was interesting. John Piper was an Armenian before he encountered this passage when he was in college. And he said he would come to Romans and just be bawling because his whole worldview of God was falling apart. So if you don't see the truth that, you see, that I'm encouraging you to see this morning, ask God to open your eyes because we need to understand that God elects unconditionally. God is justified in choosing to have mercy on who He will have mercy. God is justified to harden who He will harden. I promise you, if God was in a courtroom, He would come out the victor. He would be justified in His choice. Let's pray and we'll finish today. Lord, we thank You for Your mercy and Your grace, Your love for us. I pray, Lord, that we would be hungry to share the gospel with our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, especially in this time when people are losing hope. I pray that we would have hope, that our love for Christ and the work that He has done with us would cause them to look at us and say, how in the world are you happy right now? How in the world do you have joy in your life right now? Or give us peace as we share the gospel. Lord, help us to avoid the, the idea that we often think of, well, I probably shouldn't witness that person because they're not going to receive what I have to say because of what they look like or the way they talk or the actions that we know they have been a part of. Lord, your election is more powerful 
than any sin that we have. And I pray that we would be moved by compassion. Just like Jesus with that woman at the well. No one else would talk to her, but Jesus did. And she was changed, transformed. And Lord, that's our desire. Lord, encourage us with our eternal hope. The fact that you, when you elect us, preserve us and keep us to the end. We thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, be merciful to us this week and help us to show mercy to others. Lord, you are a faithful God. Help us to love you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.